Hello and welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I am your host, Grayson Prolty. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to have Sherry Negum, head of SAE Books, SAE International. On today's episode, Sherry and I discussed our love of books. We also discussed the past, present, and the future of SAE Books and how Sherry curates the collection while building trust with authors and the readers. We hope you enjoy this conversation because it's really interesting, really profound, because books are special, and Sherry shares that story. Sherry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I keep sending my authors, but now I get to join you. We're excited to have you here. Books are cool. More importantly, you publish amazingly cool books. So thank you for sending the authors here. And now's the time to tell the story of why SAE launched a book division, because you're rocking and rolling and doing a really great job. So why? Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, the books division came around in 1989. SAE is a long history. And when you think back, all the movers and shakers have always belonged to SAE. So the first book that was ever published was actually the history of internal combustion engines called Internal Fire, published by the son of the founder of the Cummings Engine Company, which is going strong today. So that's, you know, I think when you look back, they had so much historical data at that time and they weren't sure what to do with it. It didn't fit into papers, it didn't fit into the other things they were doing. So the early books were really about capturing the history of automotives and making sure we had that somewhere. Cummins is a, a phenomenal company. Recently, the CEO of Cummins gave a really big interview to Forbes and he talked about how Cummins is turning from an internal combustion engine company to a sustainability company focused on electrification. So fast forwarding 100 years, could we see a, a history of electrification by the Cummins family once again? I absolutely think so. Yeah, I, I think I'll put that on my list. There we go. See, we'll, we'll, we'll predict the future here. And that's that's what makes this fun. And, and books are great. So you, you have this great historical archive with the Cummins book to other really incredible books. You have the McLaren book and all these really interesting stories that people didn't know. The McLaren book was really interesting because it told the story of Bruce, Bruce McLaren, the engine company, not the racing company. When I read this, like, wow, I learned something. And that seems to be a common fact with the great books that you publish. I always learn something. What do you think, in your opinion, sets SAE Books apart from other publishers? You know, the, the short answer is I get to have fun. The long answer is, you know, I come from a, a background of textbooks, textbook publishing, and you're always obligated to a financial number. So you're always working toward the next revision of a book. Working for a nonprofit gives us the freedom to really look at what our customer base needs, what our membership needs. So I always use the example of, you know, a big textbook comp company would publish acoustical engineering, which is appropriate for all mechanical engineers. Whereas we're publishing acoustic materials specifically for vehicles. So we're able to go down two or three levels that our customers need that may not be the big ticket items that a university would adopt on a widespread basis, but really addresses what we're good at, which is understanding our market and understanding our customers. So you're sitting there in the symphony, you're the conductor of the orchestra. You're there in Royal Albert Hall, for example, and you're conducting this orchestra. Is that how you view this? Absolutely. That or a mad scientist, either, either one works appropriately. Either one's cool. Yeah, I think both are cool. You know, I say mad scientist because one of the first things I always make clear with my authors is that I am not an industry expert. That's not why SAE brought me on. That's not what I do. My job is to make books. So I always tell them I know just enough to be dangerous when I speak with them. I know enough to ask some, you know, maybe thoughtful questions, but maybe some they're like rolling their eyes at. 
And that's okay. I have that freedom to do that. Because at the end of the day, what I'm looking at is the overall big picture of what we're publishing and what makes sense, what fits with what's happening in the industry today, but more importantly, what's happening tomorrow. Because you have to remember, you know, books have a two-year ramp-up time. So books that are coming out today, we started talking about two or three years ago. And if we get really, really lucky, like racing towards zero, then we can release it right when the rest of the world is starting to talk about things that matter. So it's really, a, a yeah, it's an orchestra, what's happening now, but it's also a mad scientist of predicting the future. Racing towards zero, the untold story of Driving Green, we had the co-authors on. And boy, oh boy, was that book spot on that you see the high gas prices. And we had news out of the UK yesterday reporting the Financial Times that we're going to have a diesel shortage. And the authors in um, Drive, Racing Towards Zero talk about the need for hybrid and how hybrid is actually good for the environment. Controversial topic, but I want to point, it's winning awards. You're winning awards for that. Their book is gaining steam. It's all over LinkedIn. It's, it's rising on the Amazon charts. Yeah. What did you see two years ago that you said, wait a second, this is a really great story. The two gentlemen love to hug engines. Yes. But what did you see besides that two years ago that would have this profound impact that it's having today? First, it always starts with the passion of the authors. When someone comes to me that they are so passionate about the project, I mean, I mean, literally, Kelly takes pictures hugging engines. We know he's into it. So yes. that was kind of the first clue. But then that gives me the precipice to start doing my own research to see, okay, is there something really behind here? What are other people saying? And what I find so interesting is at that time, two years ago, nobody was thinking about what it takes to manufacture a battery. We were all looking at, and still do to the most part, we look at the final outcome, which is what happens when you put the battery in the car and we don't have the emissions. I was incredibly impressed with them stepping back and saying, hey, we're gonna to need to educate people on the entire environmental impact that creating these batteries has and the resources that it uses. And for me, I just thought, I wasn't sure where the future was going, but I knew at some point we would hit that just because that's just the way the nature does right now. We're, we're all so environmentally conscious. And it just so happened that right when we published the book, everybody was on the zero emission commitment signing off on that. So it was great timing. How do you go about curating the books? Or is it, do you get email pitches? Do you talk to industry experts? How do you go about curating, let's call it the, the lineup of books that you're preparing to publish and work with authors on? Great question. That's We call it our pipeline. At any one time, I have to have three years worth of books in my pipeline. That's just the way you know things happen. Life happens. Some books drop off. Some books come on. I do review every proposal that I get. Um, I get a lot of contacts via LinkedIn. And I'll send them my email address and we'll get a proposal and we'll start looking at that. Sometimes it's just you know looking at what SAE is doing at conventions. Who's speaking at conventions? You know Where are the keynote topics? What's going on on journals? You know, we have a fabulous product now, Edge Reports, that came out about two years ago, which looks at just a snippet of unsettled topics. And if you think about it, they're kind of the precursor to the books, because what I can do is look at what Monica's acquiring now and see what the topics are gonna be three years from now, because the hope is within three years, those topics have been settled and we can be on the forefront of publishing whatever that resolution is. So it's a little bit of my wish list, a little bit of what the industry's telling me, and just a little bit of what falls in my lap, to be honest. That's a really great point with the edge reports, because if you want to use the term, it gives you a glimpse into the future to help you properly prepare. Absolutely. It, it, sometimes it just lets me know I'm on the right track. 
you know, one thing I'm incredibly interested in acquiring right now is something about human machine interaction with autonomous vehicles. You know, we don't know where that's going. And so I know something's going to happen, but I don't know what. So having Monica's books or having her edge reports kind of give me a glimpse. Of, oh, yeah, maybe I am on the right track. Maybe this is the direction we need to go in. That's a good one because the HMI is still unsettled. A company years ago was Drive AI. They were putting signs outside the vehicle. This is automated. But the issues, and I was in one of the vehicles, and we had it, an automated vehicle driving, and somebody decided it'd be funny to try and run us off the road. And so you have those you have those HMI issues around that. So that's still right. unsettled. Right. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how that evolves and, and moves forward. But I give you credit for for looking at the future. It's not only looking at the future, you publish really great technical books that have extremely long shelf life. For example, The Fundamentals of Vehicle Dynamics was first published in 1992, and Race Car Vehicle Dynamics was first published in 1994. That was 30 years ago. They're still selling. Yes, yes. How and why? You know, I met with Tom Gillespie in 2017 about updating his Fundamentals of Vehicle Dynamics. And in that first conversation, he said, it's the fundamentals. Math doesn't change. And I was like, okay, but he's right. You know, math doesn't change. And those books provide that great foundational material that every automotive engineer needs when they come into the program. Um, I guarantee you, if they haven't used one of those books, they've heard of one of those books. And nine times out of 10, it's sitting on their bookshelf. So having that great material as a foundation keeps those books on the shelves, even though, you know, we just did a new edition of Tom's book, because as I pointed out to him, his book didn't cover front wheel drive or four wheel drive. And maybe those were things we wanted to add to the book. But then we have to look at what's happening now in vehicle dynamics beyond the foundations. And for us, we have a new book coming out next month called Generalized Vehicle Dynamics by um, Dan Williams, which is absolutely so exciting because he kind of sets new nomenclature and he puts forth new theories about vehicle dynamics that we've never seen before. And, you know, one thing that happens when I'm not an industry expert is I always send books out for review, no matter what topic we're doing on. And there's a little bit of angst as you wait for those reviews to come back. Um, because I think it's a great book. I think it's wonderful. I invested in it, but what is everybody else going to say? So there's kind of like a lot of a celebration when the reviews come back. Oh my God, this is cool. This is exciting. Can't wait to see that. Um, so we're very excited by this book. We're excited by where Darren's taking us. And on the race car front, you have all the enthusiasm around the Netflix F1 series. You have Gran Turismo 7 out now on the PlayStation. You have race car ads seemingly all over TV and the financial channels. What we learn from the race car industry is all that attention and focus on the race car industry currently. Is that having helping sales for the race car vehicle dynamics book since it's starting to I want to see you got Netflix on one hand and you got the financial news on the other and they're all coming together talking about race cars. Yep, absolutely it is. And you also have the little niche of people who are building their own cars in the garage who have to have an understanding. You know, there are a lot of weekend builders out there who take on the book just to kind of understand what they need to do when they build their vehicles. We also have, you know, the collegiate series of where they build their own cars and compete. And again, that's a, a great place for that book to take place because it's a foundational material. Does the foundational material of the technical books, does that allow you to expand into more well-rounded topics with deep industry knowledge? For example, if you had an author and said, hey, sure, I like to write about the future of 3D mapping or hey, sure, I like to talk about 
the role that radar will play in enabling um, ADAS or autonomy? Is that something where you kind of go that more rounded knowledge where it's not in the weeds, it's more of a, a larger storytelling environment? Yeah, absolutely it does. You know, when, when I look at the publishing program as a whole, we have to have the technical book as a basis. Um, those are what we're known for. That's what our audience expects. But we have the freedom as a nonprofit to kind of look at those exploration books on industry, you know, insights is what I would call them. We have a book uh, by Allison Malik that looks at really what is the future of mobility across the board and how are we going to come together in ways that we've never done before. So it's not going to, it's not going to be a professional reference that you can grab off the shelf, but it's certainly a book that's important topic that we talk about today so that we can shape tomorrow. And uh, without those technical books, without the basis of those books to build our program, I wouldn't be able to do these little offshoots that I am able to explore. Exploring is fun. It's that always learning philosophy. There's nothing, in my opinion, that's, and I know I'm going to sound old school, but going into a bookstore and wandering around from aisle to aisle, opening books and and walking out of there with a stack of books of stuff that you never knew that you would have an interest in. That's the beauty of books. I agree wholeheartedly. How do you, the the publishing industry is changing. Seemingly every week, there's another Amazon package of another book being delivered here to my house. With that changing publishing industry, the the Kindle, the iPad, the various different reading devices, Apple Books, how do you see SAE Books evolving and growing over the coming years? Will you continue to embrace those new reading platforms while while still printing old school print? And I there's nothing better than a hardcover print book for the record, so please keep <laughs> printing those. Absolutely, you know, nine out of ten books sold are hard copies for us. Um, so I think our audience agrees with both of us that we need that tactile experience. You know, for me, I remember pre-pandemic, it was so exciting to go to a bookstore and pull something off the shelf and do what I call the flip test. So, you know, for me, I look at the index. That's where I tend to go first. But everybody has that one thing that they flip to. And you don't get that with an ebook. So a lot of what we're seeing in the industry as a whole for books is that it's more of the fiction books. It's more of the leisure reading that people are more willing to go into for eBooks. Again, eBooks, they do well, but they don't do, I think, it's so funny. I remember, you know, in the early 2000s, people were like, print's going to go away. And there was a whole panic about that. Print's never going to go away. You know, we'll get smarter about how we use our resources to print books, especially with the shortage right now of paper. But that experience is not going to go away just because of human nature and the wanting to feel and touch and have an experience with a book. And you can't do that as well with an ebook. Then there's the other aspect of it, the sense of accomplishment when you read it and you put it on your bookshelf and you can look there with pride. And as the bookshelf grows, the, the, the prouder you get. And it's really funny. You take your bookshelf and you, it gets, it's, you have multiple bookshelves like me and it gets bigger. You say, okay, these are the finance books. These are the automotive books. These are the business books. And it's fun when you can curate it and you can find patterns in what you read. You can do that with a physical book when you're looking at a bookshelf. Yeah. And what I find so interesting is that you can pull it off the shelf and open it up and see whatever you've no, you know put in the notes and share that with somebody right then and there. It's not as easy to do with an ebook. You know, you could, you just can't, you can't have the same experience. Um, let me ask, do you share your books? I used to, but they, they never came back. And I would I would read a book and I would say, oh, somebody, you would never do this. And I finally said, enough, I never get them back. And so I stopped sharing after that. 
It's so funny. My 16-year-old uh, recently shared a book and got it back and was so angry about the condition that it was returned in. And I just laughed. I'm like, it's, that's wear and tear. You know, she had opened the friend had to open the pages, Stella, and look at the book. But she was like, I'm never sharing another book ever again. It was just it was really funny because, you know, I think because their mom's a publisher, my kids are incredibly passionate about books more so than other kids. So I just was like, the things that bother a 16 year old are just beyond sometimes. So now I, I, I recommend it and I'll send an Amazon link. <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'll buy the book and send it to them. The, my copy does not leave the house anymore. That's what I do. I actually buy the book and send it to somebody. I'm like, you're not getting my copy either. It's the things that we learn. You learned a lot growing up around publishing. This is the coolest thing. Your mother was a librarian. Your mm -hmm. father was a printer. Yes. That's an incredible background to become a book publisher. Was that that influence growing up in that household that started your love of books? Absolutely. You know, a lot of different factors played into it. I grew up in rural Kentucky as an only child, pre-technology days, pre-cable vision. <laughs> so you, know, you had to find something besides, you know, you can only play softball for so long. But um, I remember being a little kid and my dad would take me to the newspaper where he was ran the press. And there was something so amazing and magical to me to see something on a metal plate that got run through this huge machine and came out as a newspaper at the other end. You know, you to, again, remember this was before inktip printers and we could print in our homes. It, for me, it was a magical experience. And then when my mom became a librarian and we had a library parked in our driveway, um, it took it to a whole new level for me. It was just, it was, a, it was an opportunity that as a child, I wasn't aware of how unique it was. Um, you know, now I know people can't go to the, their driveway and pull a book out of the bookmobile like I could. But at the time, it was such a part of my life. Like when I was born, I would just go to mom's bookmobile and get a book out. And the rule was as long as I had it back the next day that I could take it out that night or that weekend. So I'm an incredibly fast reader just because the pressure my mom put on me. To, like It's got to be back by Sunday night so I can take it out to the, you know, the community. But um, it, it just instilled the wonder of books for me and how it opened up my realm beyond my little town in Kentucky. Not just, the, not just the fiction books, which were great, but there was so much I just didn't know about the world. And you don't know what you don't know until you see it. And that's kind of what my experience was, especially when I would start looking at the nonfiction books. And that, that was huge for me. And so it kind of made me passionate about wanting to take that love to other people and open those doors for other people who didn't have that advantage. And so I knew from very early on that's what I wanted to go in. And yeah, I remember my dad just sitting me down going, you can't, you can't go into publishing. You can't be an English major. You need to do business. This is the sites we had set on you. This is what you need to do. And I'm like, I don't love that. I want to do what I love. And um, for me, it was just a great path. I have just been incredibly blessed through my entire career. If you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. It's true. You mentioned bookmobile. First thing you said, bookmobile pops in my head is the Oscar Mayer mobile that goes, goes around is this is this um like a children's novel where the vehicle's designed like a shoe or it's designed like a, a book what is a bookmobile because i have all these really cool funky ideas in my head but what is a bookmobile i think the best way to describe it that we can all relate to is it is a ups truck type vehicle 
that is retrofitted or I guess it's created as Bookmobile, but it's full of bookshelves. And, you know, the little touches like the bookshelves have to like have a level. They have to angle in so the books don't fall out when my mom's driving. But again, those rural communities don't have access to libraries um, and we don't have access to public transportation. You know, there's no bus stop in the middle of Kentucky to take you 20 miles to a library. So what my mom was able to do through the public library service is drive this little bookmobile around that had about, I don't think about 5,000 books in it to different people in the community. And, you know, we couldn't, again, we didn't have internet, we didn't have any of that stuff. So, you know, my mom had a two week cycle. She would be in different little towns every two weeks. And when she visited your town, you could request a book from the big library. And the next time my mom came through, she'd have it ready for you. So again, it was just a magical and wonderful experience for not just me, but for everyone who got to, for the first time, have access to books in their community. I think we forget that owning a book is a privilege that not everybody has. It's it, They're expensive. They always have been, especially, you know, in, in poverty-stricken communities. And for me, it, it was definitely rural Kentucky. We didn't own books. That was just unheard of that we could go buy a book. So suddenly when this lady shows up in your neighborhood on the corner with this magical box of books and her little bookmobile, it was it was amazing. Um, and I would always get a kick out of my mom putting the bookmobile in a, in a local parade. You know, first, you know, the first few years I was embarrassed, I was mortified. <laughs> I, was, I was hiding in the bookmobile. But then I realized there was just this huge celebration in my community about what that represented to people. And um, as I grow older, that I kind of appreciate that more and, and was like, hey, my mom drives the bookmobile. It's a proud moment. Did you get to go on any of the routes with your mom in the bookmobile? All summer. That's what I did. She, she called me an intern. But yeah, no, I did all the routes with her during the summer and I got to know people. And I think that's where um, I became a people person because you can't, as much as you want to kind of like sit in the back and not talk to people, it's a freaking UPS truck. <laughs> Everybody sees you. You can't just sit there and not talk to people. Plus you have that whole Southern ingrainment of manners. Yes, ma'am. Yes. No, ma'am. Yes, sir. And when someone talks, you have to engage. There's no stepping back. So what I learned is to look at what people were reading and let that tell me how to gauge a conversation about what they're we're interested in. And that's when I really began to appreciate some oral history that people would just sit down and, and talk to me, you know, for that whole, you know, 25 minutes that she's going to be parked here, I would get to hear some really incredible stories. Is that kind of what started to unlock your curiosity around learning in books and reading books that you might have not thought about reading on different topics? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I didn't know what books were on the shelves. You know, when you're 12, 13, 14, you're going to stay with those teen angst books that are in, you know, the far corner. You're not really going to have a motivation. This is an assignment to venture out to all the nonfiction. And it was really watching those people take those books off the shelves. That I'm like, I would make notes about, okay, when Mr. Smith returns that next in two weeks, I'm going to make a note of my mom to hold it for me that night so I can look at it. And uh, it, it was incredibly interesting to me how much knowledge you could get from a book. When you, you segue out of the, the bookmobile, and you, you had a really great career in publishing before joining SAE Books, 
When you went through some of those early interview hiring processes, did you talk about your passion of books and the bookmobiles? Is that what led you? And you worked on the uh, the Dummy series, which became very popular. There was a Dummies for Everything. You even did the Kevin Costner one, um, Dummies did. for Dummies for Golf. I play golf. I'm an avid golfer, and it's it's not easy. You need a coach. So how did that come about? I was very lucky. I went to Murray State University in Murray, Kentucky, and I was about to graduate, and I was incredibly panicked. And someone said to me, do you know there's a publishing company up the road? And I'm like, no, I did not. And uh, I started at Schrader Publishing. It was a family-owned business. And we did books on antiques and quilts, antiques and collectibles. It was so small that every April, when the quilting convention came to town, we would shut down the entire publishing house. And we'd have to put our white gloves on and go work at the quilt museum. So it was just, it was such a small, wonderful place to start my career. It was a transition period for publishing. When I started, we were doing automatic, we were doing paste up with wax on pages. And when I left, we were doing, you know, technology publishing. We were doing desktop publishing is what we called it back then. From there, I was able to go to dummies because they didn't have anybody at that time. They had only published one book and they didn't have anybody that was doing desktop publishing. And so fresh out of college, I'm like, I'll go to Indianapolis. Oh, this sounds like a good idea. Again, one book at that time, I had no idea it was going to explode to what it did. And that's where my career really transitioned from building books as a production person to acquiring content. And, you know, they gave me the opportunity to make that transition. And really, that's when I understood how much fun it was to help someone publish a book and help their dreams come true or help someone who's been holding this knowledge in for so long understand that there's a way to give it to the world. And later in life, I began to appreciate my background, my parents, but at the time, I just knew I loved books. I gave them no no credit whatsoever until my 30s. Well, thanks for giving them credit now. We always do that, it's funny. Yeah. We, oh, you're never gonna like this, never like this. And then when you're a little older, you're like, you were right, you were right. <laughs> Acquiring content, that's a unique skill. SAE's published over 550 five unique titles to date. Do you feel that as one of your skills as the head of books, being able to find the right authors, build that trust, acquire that content and make their dreams come true? Yeah, it's my passion. That's why I do my job. I do other aspects of my job, but that's the part that lights me up. I love showing people that there are ways to write books that maybe they didn't know, that they have content already written that they can turn into a book. You know, it's so funny. Dr. Pranab Saha signed his contract with SAE in 2014. I met with him in 2017 and we just published the book last year. So that was a relationship that we started building trust and really getting him to see that writing a book isn't as always as straightforward as you have to sit at the desk and type all day. He had so much content that we could use from courses he had taught, from lectures he had given. And it was really just a matter of putting him with the right editor to figure out how to sort that material into a book. Um, sometimes it's t talking to an author and saying, you don't have to do the writing. If you want to just transcribe the book, if you just want to just make recordings of a book, then I can hire someone to transcribe it and then we can shape it into a book. So that's really my passion is finding ways to help people express the knowledge that they have so we can share it with the world. Is the editing process sensitive around the egos uh, with an author? If you want to either expand upon something or shorten something, does that become, you have to be very, very careful 
delicate when you go through the editing process? You do. And I think that's always an advantage that I've had of being not an industry expert, no matter what I've been working on. You know, I did medical for a long time. I'm definitely not, you know, any medical career. I have the ability to go in and say, I'm not judging you on what you've written and the content. I'm looking at it from a reader's perspective. How is the reader going to access this content? You know, if you dive into something that's a level five and we haven't built up to that, I'm able to frame it in a way that, that they see, okay, let's look at it from the reader's perspective. It's not about me criticizing anything that they've written. It's just about making sure they understand that we have to write it with the end user in mind. And sometimes that requires them to tweak how they approach things. Without the audience, so you're building, I like this, you're building trust with your author. You're, you're building and maintaining trust with your audience. That's a complete win-win. The other factor that goes into this is timing. You're hitting home run after home run. I'm a big Yankee fan, so I'll say, okay, you're number seven Mickey Mantle, and, and you're cracking the home run after home run and, and maybe a double or a triple here, but you're rocking and rolling because you recently published Manufacturing First Corruption. Who wins? You open up the Financial Times, you read about the horrendousness in the Congo, you look at what's happening in Chile around the min the raw earth materials and all the corruption that goes into that. It, this is only growing. You have Javier Blas on Bloomberg who's talking about it every single day. What did you see in the market? You said two years it normally takes before you publish. What did you see in the market two years ago? You said, wait a second. This is going to be another major opportunity for us because you time this one perfectly and you time the racing uh, to green publicly I, perfectly. I can't see, wait to see what you time perfectly next. Fingers crossed. But I'd love to focus on what did you see two years ago when you started this process of this book? You know, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, what we saw pretty quickly were communities that relied on non-manufacturing revenue for their economy. If they relied on tourism or banking or something that suddenly ended for them, you know, we had whole countries that were devastated in ways that we can't imagine because they had no other economic things to fall back on. So when, and this book came, came about when I was following up with an author who had disappeared, that's sort of like rule number one. If my authors disappear, that means that I need to track them down because they're either not working for whatever reason, or they're working on something else that I need to be aware of. And this was the case with this author. And I'm like, okay, what's going on? Why have I not heard from you in two months? And he's like, I have this new book. And he starts telling me about it. And I'm, I'm like, manufacturing versus corruption. Wow, that is so interesting. And one thing that I have to do is I have a responsibility to SAE to make sure that we don't do what I would call opinion pieces. Um, we have to remain neutral. It's just, uh, you know, what we do. So the thing that was so appealing about Rami's book is it's all scientific methodologies. It's all about how you can build your own economy through digital manufacturing and manufacturing. And these are the scientific steps you need to use to do that. So it's neither here nor there about what's happening in countries at a, a political level. It's, I'm going to give you the tools. If you choose to pick up the gauntlet and better your community, this is how you do it, which makes that book so incredibly exciting. And that's only going to become a bigger trend. I like the fact that it's, you mentioned scientific. We've been covering a lot on this podcast, the circular economy, and we had the CEO on a previous podcast, the CEO of Circular, 
that's looking at raw earth materials, measuring the carbon, the human rights. And so that's a really big thing. And that's all based in data and science. And that's going to be a trend that we only see. So I can't wait to see what the follow up to that book is. Maybe it's perhaps you get an author that writes about the circular economy and the recycling of minerals and, and the positive impacts to the environment because you're hitting home run after home run, as I said. And so we, we talked about that, but I want to dive back to a book that I enjoyed. Um, and we had the authors on the McLaren, the engine company. That was an untold story. I watched on Netflix uh, prior to reading your book, the Bruce McLaren story, really interesting. And I had no idea about the McLaren engine company, the impact it had when the legendary Can-Am, the big block Chevy V8s. I was like, whoa, they were involved with this? How did you uncover that story? Did you put on a Sherlock Holmes hat and grab a pipe and a thing and said, okay, we're going to go on a mission to uncover a story? How did you do it? It fell in my lap. It was one of those wonderful things. You know, again, prior to the pandemic, it was all about meeting and greeting people when we do, would do acquisitions. And I had lunch with Roger Minor, the author, and he told me this incredible story over lunch. And I was just like, I've never heard this, and this is so engaging and interesting. And then Wiley over at McLaren unlocked the archives for him and gave him access to all of these wonderful images from that time. And it just, it really took a life of its own. The more we talked about it, the more excited we got. And it really was something that whenever you can bring something new to so, something so common, like everybody knows McLaren race cars. Everybody knows who those are. But I felt like we had, we were sitting on this little secret that nobody else knew and we were able to share that and that became a very exciting piece for us that's what i look for i look for things as an ordinary person that i find interesting and then i just hope that someone like you grayson will also find it interesting you're doing a good job roger and miley that was a fun conversation to our listeners i highly recommend you listen to the podcast with, with roger and wiley it was an interesting conversation sure we've talked a lot about cars but a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with sae has a very large aerospace division for standards does really great work you get on an, on a boeing plane or you get on an airbus plane there's sae standards on there aerospace is cool it's evolving with the ev tall space and there's a lot of investment going into it all right do you publish books on aerospace as well absolutely Absolutely. We have some great material in aerospace. You know, one of my favorite books now, we have a, a great accident reconstruction book for aerospace, which is the only one of its kind, which is a pretty incredible that no one's ever written a book about accident reconstructions for you know aerospace engineers and, and how that happens. But we also do books. We have a book by Pascal Thalen on electric aircrafts. We had a book uh, last year came out on aircraft landing gear. And that book is huge. It's like 1,500 pages. It's two volumes. It's everything you would ever want to know about aircraft landing gear. And after it came out, I, I called the author because it wasn't a book that I had acquired. I didn't know him that well. I'm like, okay, let's pretend I don't know anything, which I really don't. But here's my question. Does everybody need to know all of this content if they're working on landing gear? And he's like, no, because it, it, it's everything. I'm like, okay, so just follow me. So what if we took out sections of the book and made new books that were more appealing to an audience who didn't want that entire book? So for example, there are some people who just work on breaks. That's all they work on. So that's the part that's relevant to them. So Kyle and I went through the book at a, at a really granular level and said, 
okay, we think there are actually three books in here that make sense for SAE, that make sense to broaden our audience. Um, you know, someone's not going to pay $225 for a book if they only need 124 pages of it. So that's kind of what we're working on now. We're, we're about to release three new books. Um, they're derivative of his big book, but they're specialized so that if you're just working on brakes or you're just working on wheels, you don't have to get the whole kit and caboodle about landing gear. That's really smart because I could imagine you have an engineer that's just interested in what is the impact when that when that Boeing 737 hits the tarmac. What, from an engineering perspective, what has to be done to ensure that it doesn't collapse? I mean, that's got to be an incredible engineering problem to solve. Right, exactly. That's what. That's why I went to him. I'm like, okay, I can't. It's hard for me to fathom that one person is responsible for everything that happens with landing. So walk me through that. And you know, approaching it from that viewpoint, he was able to see. Oh, that makes sense. I never thought about that person who just works on wheels needing just that part of the book. So I'm I'm really excited. We're launching these in a couple months. I'm really excited to see how they do. In addition to the the landing series of books that are coming out, what other books are you most excited about in aerospace? It's really all about the electric engine right now, even in, in aerospace and how that how that's going to work. How are we going to design those? I'm very interested in lightweighting material overall, not only, you know, for automotive and how are we going to lightweight those, you know, fleet trucks, but how are we going to redesign a, an aircraft, which already has to be light by, by, you know, definition, but we have to go even further if we're going to start running it off batteries. Um, so those things are really incredibly important to me. You know, and I have some crazy ideas that I just want someone to call in or hit me on LinkedIn and say, let's do a book on this. Like, I want to do something on, you know, drones, unmanned vehicles. You know, what can we do on that? What can we do? You know, I'm really interested in the legal issues involved for engineers. You know, sometimes I have authors who call me and say, oh, I can't go to a meeting because I have a, a trial to go to. I'm, I'm being an expert witness. And as I talk to them, they, there's a fear there. They don't understand what that means for them. It's not something they do all the time. So I'm sort of interested in doing a book on that for them, which is, again, outside of our technology, but something that our industry needs. And then uh, I was with my kids in Ann Arbor a while back, and I was explaining to them what M-City was. They were so fascinated that there's this whole town, a little you know manufactured town to test autonomous vehicles. And they were like, why don't you have a book on that? I would love to read a book on that. I'm like, well, that check, that's another great idea. And again, it's that it's those technology books, those foundation books that allow me to even entertain the idea of doing some of our more fun books, like the legal issue, not fun, but more of our non-traditional books, like the legal issues or something on M-City or, you know, things like that. So that's what you can expect next. Well, I'm excited for that. The, the legal liability issues around drones and eVTOLs is one that's undecided because if you look at it from a city government perspective, if the drone falls out of the sky and hits a pedestrian, who's responsible? Is it, the, is it the person operating the drone or is it the drone manufacturer? If it crashes into a building, who's responsible? So you're right. It goes back to what you said earlier, the unsettled issues. And those have to be right. defined because there's all this talk in autonomous vehicles. We need a national framework. At some point, we're going to need a national framework for, for drone operation and an eVTOL operation around liability because lawyers will get in there and have a field day and they'll put billboards up, hit by a drone, call us, we'll figure it out. So well done on that. You're looking to the future and putting all this together. What is the future of SAE books? I'm in charge of aerospace and 
um, automotives and commercial vehicles. So you've got one person in charge of three different areas and I really rely on feedback from our customer to tell me what's next. That's who I go to. That's where I, you know, I will send out surveys. I will just like give title lists out and say, what do you think about this? I'll talk to buyers or librarians to run ideas through them. And that sort of shapes the future. Right now we're looking at, definitely we have a book called AI coming out. We are working on Automated Connected. We just published a book on the fundamentals of Automated Connected Vehicles. But we're really looking at, again, electrification. What's the national grid going to look like? How, how are we going to drive cross country, you know, when we, we can't charge our vehicles? And I look at it not from an engineering perspective so much as a consumer. You know, we're working right now on a consumer facing book on buying electric vehicles. And that was really a fun book for me because I got to ask so many questions that I had on my own. My husband works for Rivian, so I still had a lot of questions about what's it going to be like when we have this big truck in our garage? You know, how far can I go? And, and so those are the types of questions that we look to answer for our customers. You know, we're at a unique perspective because we are addressing for the first time consumers at SAE and not just engineers. Our books have allowed us to kind of open some doors. You know, we've been in Forbes recently. We had some um, great magazines ask for copies of books. So fingers crossed that we'll get more national attention. But we're kind of looking at what can we do? What's our responsibility to the consumer who may not know SAE as a name, but should, you know, at some point. You're doing a great job. You're right. SAE is going to this wonderful transition where it's becoming more of a consumer brand. It still has the core focus on insurance, but it's becoming a consumer brand. And I want to point out the EV grid for electric vehicles running on the grid is a very smart topic. The Biden administration came out this week and said we're expecting a massive increase of cyber attacks because of the ongoing conflict in the Ukraine and Russia. And imagine if every, if say 60% of Americans or 70% of Americans had an electric vehicle and they plugged in, that's, it becomes a national security issue. That's a really great book. What are the national security implications of electrification? They're talking about it in my, in my wonky national security political circles, but to put the SAE technical engineering aspect combined with your great background in the consumer markets, that's going to make for a wonderful book. And I, I can't wait to read that because as I said, Sherry, and I continue to say, you have your finger on the pulse of what's next. And, and as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them? You know, for me, it's all about anybody can write a book. Don't be afraid. Don't put it off any longer. You know, my job is to make the process easier and as painless as possible. And that's one thing that I really relish when my authors come back and say, well, that wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. You know, it's work. And every single person has a full-time job um, that's not writing a book. And I think that's something else that puts people off. It's like, oh, I work full-time. I can't write a book. That's what I do is I find ways to have, make you have time and I make things easier for you. So just walk away with knowing if, you, if you're passionate about something and you want to write a book, whether it's about technology or something else, you can do it. It's just a matter of having, like anything, the right tools and not, being, not letting the process intimidate you, but be willing to trust people and push through. So um, for all those people who are listening, I just hope my LinkedIn box gets flooded with uh, proposals because I, I can't wait to dig into that. 
if you're interested in writing a book potentially for SAE, re- reach out to Sherry on LinkedIn. As she said, she'll respond to you. She reads every proposal. And if you're not interested in, in writing a book, read an SAE book. They're extremely well done. They're well curated. And frankly, they're a lot of fun to read because today is tomorrow. Tomorrow is today. And the future is and always will be books. Sherry, thank you so much for coming on SAE tomorrow today. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on the show today. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week when I'll speak with the president of Magna Powertrain, Tom Rucker, about how Magna is developing highly sophisticated mobility solutions that are focused on sustainability in the future. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.